2005, I became the pastor of a church in San Antonio, Texas. And after a couple of months of being there, I discovered that there was a woman in the church that was 105 years old, that she had been born at the turn of the century, and I just had to go visit her. I had to go kind of find out and hear her story. And so I went to where she lived. She didn't live in a nursing care facility. She still lived in the same family home that she had grown up in. It was a farmhouse that used to be in the middle of nowhere, but was now more in kind of the middle of this medical center area. Do you, how many of you have seen the movie Up? You remember the old house and the skyscrapers? It was kind of like that, but um, a little more farmland around it, but huge buildings, the third largest medical center in the state of Texas surrounding it, and there's this little old farm. You've got to imagine what this woman has seen in her lifetime. I mean, think of the technological changes and advances that she's seen with the invention of the automobile and then the radio and then modern medical advances and even the digital revolution. Think of the world events that she has lived through in her life. Think of going through the Great Depression. I, I asked her, I said, how did you get to America? And she said that her family, when she was a child, was, the, was on the first ship that crossed the Atlantic after the Titanic, the first passenger ship that did that. So she's seen things like, you know, the Great Depression. She's seen, uh, you know, the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Think of the civil rights movement, putting a man on the moon, the explosion of the Challenger, and even 9-11. She's seen all of that. She's still living in the farmhouse when I come to visit her. And you need to understand, farmhouse, farmhouse, South Texas, no central heat, no central AC. Incredible. I mean, she was, I mean, I got there and I'm like, I feel like such a wimp because she's so tough. Uh, um, she had a stove in the kitchen, and it was a wood-burning stove. If you don't know what that is, think big green egg with a chimney out the top. That's what she had in her kitchen. It was amazing. I asked her if she had bought anything uh, recently, and she had paused for a moment. And she said yes, that she bought a microwave about 20 years ago. <laughs> that that was like a recent acquisition for her. So she's still living in this farmhouse, the shadow of all these, these big buildings. And as I'm hanging out with her, I am absolutely inspired. I'm inspired that this woman at her advanced age is still so able to communicate and knows what's going on. I was amazed and inspired by the fact that she had such incredible perspective and wisdom. And most of all, I was humbled by the fact that here was a person who was so content, so happy with what she had. Are you? When you think about it, we used to, most of us, live on farms. If you go back even not that far in history, just a handful of generations, most of us lived on farms. And, and when we did so, information came at us at a very different pace. That you're on a farm, somebody would come over to visit, you would talk face-to-face, -face, you would share news with one another and kind of catch up on the gossip or what was happening in the community or in their family or even at the world at large. That was how information was disseminated. 
And then we moved closer together as we congregated more into cities, and we had more ability to be able to communicate with one another, but at the same time of us being in closer proximity and being able to stay kind of closer and you know, face-to-face conversation with people, there was the invention of the television set. And so we no longer know our neighbors, and we were paying attention to what the television was teaching us. And then there was a phrase that came up with the advent of the television. It was called keeping up with the keeping up with the Joneses, because now we're benchmarking our lives, not on how our farm is doing, but we're benchmarking our lives on, we're seeing those people on TV, and how are they doing? Is what I'm doing able to keep up with what they're doing? And is what I have keeping up with what my neighbors in suburbia have? And so we're paying attention to that kind of thing, and communication is changing. And then you fast forward even more Do you get to the invention of the smartphone and to social media? And now we're even in closer proximity with one another, even shoved closer together into cities. And we have more of an ability to stay in contact and connection to one another than ever, ever before. And so we're given the ability to peer into one another's lives. With social media, we, we know what everybody's doing. We know what our friends are doing. We know what celebrities are doing. We know what sports stars are doing. We know all of these different things, what they're eating, where they're going, who they're with, where they're vacationing. We get to see it all. And now we're not benchmarking ourselves off of the Joneses. We're looking at all of that information and comparing and saying, how am I doing in relationship to that? Think of the avalanche that is the information that is coming down on us that is so different from not that long ago. I don't know if you ever saw the statistic, um, but this one I read a little while ago, and it blew my mind that an average Sunday edition of the New York Times contains more information than a 17th century gentleman would typically encounter in a lifetime. Now, of course, that means partially what do you mean by information, but the volume of the word coming down on us like ever before. So there's good news about social media. The good news about social media is you and I have more of an ability to stay connected than ever before. And there's bad news about social media. The bad news about social media is that you and I have the ability to connect more than we ever have before. That there's a shadow side or a downside or a mental cost to what is the gift of social media. This is why the great philosopher Bill Murray put it this way. He said, social media is training us to compare our lives instead of appreciating everything we are. No wonder why everyone is always depressed. And so one of the things that we're experiencing that they've even put into the dictionary right now is what they refer to as FOMO or the fear of missing out. And there's bound to be some people out there that are over a certain age that you're going to roll your eyes. You're going to say they put an acronym in the dictionary, and this is particularly a young person's struggle. I want you to know that psychologists say that the midlife crisis is basically a glorified form of the fear of missing out. And I know that there's young people here today that think that no other generation in history has ever had to struggle with this, what I want you to hear today is that this, in some form or fashion, has been going on for a long time. 
We're in the midst of a series of messages that's called Unafraid. We're talking about that great command of Jesus to be not afraid, to live our lives without fear. And we live in an age of anxiety. There is this meteor shower of what ifs. And today we're dealing with the fear of missing out. What if I'm not included? And to anchor ourselves today, I would love for you to experience a scripture that's about King Saul and his young protege, David. Whatever mission Saul sent David on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and timbrels and lyres. And as they danced, they sang, Saul is slain as thousands and David is tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. When you go back to the beginning of the Bible and you see and consider how sin entered into the world, you get to Genesis chapter 3, and it says that Adam and Eve eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which means that they want to determine for themselves what was right and wrong. They wanted to be their own God. They wanted to be in control. They wanted to displace God's will and God's ways for their life. They wanted to put themselves at the center of the universe. And so the first sin that enters into the world is the sin of pride. And it's just in the next chapter that you see the evolution of sin and the next derivation of sin that comes to us in the form of the next generation with Cain and Abel, that they make their offerings before God. Cain makes his offering, Abel makes his offering, and yet Abel's offering is accepted and Cain's is not. And this makes Cain incredibly jealous. And it leads to the next sins of anger and of murder. And the story cascades out from there. One of the great themes of the Bible is the destructive force of jealousy. Even consider how this plays out continuing in the book of Genesis with The story of Joseph, that amazing coat that was filled with color that his father gave him as a sign of blessing and favor, and the brothers look at that coat, and it makes them insanely jealous, and they want to get rid of him because of it. What was meant to be a sign of the blessing becomes a sign of destruction. You continue throughout all the different courses of the Bible. You look into the disciples, and they're jealous of one another, and their position, and they're jockeying and comparing themselves to one another. And today in the story, we looked at the story of King Saul. He is the first king of Israel. He has been anointed and chosen. 
and he has this great warrior named David, and he looks at David's success, and with all of the things that God has given to him, position, status, wealth, he can't see any of it. All he sees is David and his success, and he hears the refrain of that song echoing in his ears, and he becomes so jealous that he wants to get rid of him. This is the natural result of what jealousy will do in your heart and mine. I actually think that the term FOMO is not the best term for this. I actually like the term FOBLO, which means the fear of being left out. Because I don't think it's just quite missing out. I actually think it's a fear of rejection, of isolation. In fact, they've done studies with teenagers, about a third of teenagers right now report being chronically lonely and experiencing high degree of FOMO. And when they do the studies, they actually discover that those two things are directly related to one another. So there's a teenage girl out there who on a Saturday night while she's at home pulls out her phone, looks at it, and she's scrolling through the social media feed, and she sees what she thought was all of her best friends out doing something, and she wasn't invited, and she feels the sting of that rejection. And a little seed gets planted within her of resentment. And so what's behind the fear of missing out is something that in the ancient practice of the Christian tradition, what they would refer to as the struggle of envy. It's what they call the sin of comparison. Constantly benchmarking your life over what you see in someone else's life. I find that there's a lot of confusion over envy and greed, so let me explain the difference between the two. Greed is when you say what's mine is mine. Envy is when you say what's yours ought to be mine. That's the difference. You see someone else's success, someone else's grades, someone else's career, someone else's family, and as Frederick Buechner says, you want other people to be as unhappy and as unsuccessful as you are. That's what envy does when we let it in our souls. And so what I'd like to do today is to have us just honest confession moment that the fear of missing out is a real problem, right? One person who is my wife says that the fear of missing out is, so she gets to go home because she gets this. The rest of you have to stay. Can we agree that FOMO is a problem? And that it's particularly a problem today? And that it's true in this sanctuary? And it's even true in my heart and in yours as well. So what's the antidote is there any wisdom, is there any grace from Scripture, any good news that we can turn to in the midst of this? How do you miss out on the fear of missing out? That's what I want to talk about today. And the first thing that we need to do in order to miss out on the fear of missing out is to get real, is to get real. I was hanging out with one of our daughters, and she was on social media, sitting on the couch, and there was like this little short clip of a video, 
And um, the little short clip of a video was of, of a pop kind of star, icon, music star that she really likes. And the person, as soon as the video came on, the person stuck his hand in front of the video and he's like, no, don't, don't show this. There's no filter on this. I'm hideous without a filter. In other words, what this person was saying is, I don't want anybody to see me without the benefit of the technology of the filter of seeing me in the best possible lights. I love the fact that for Halloween one year, this couple drove, kind of dressed up like this. <laughs> this is what I look like with a filter. This is what I look like without a filter. When I'm talking about getting real, I'm saying that one of the things that we need to come to terms with is that all of us live our lives in such a way is that we only want other people to see the best stuff of our life. And I don't know about you, but um, I don't post or I don't say things that I think will make me look bad. And I'm constantly curating and filtering what I say in order for you to think the best of me. And that's not just me, that's all of us in the way that we do this. So <clears throat> a friend of mine talks about how um, you can't compare the highlight reel of your life to the cutting floor of someone else's life. And when I was in college, I particularly struggled with this in that I had a mentor, and I would have called it a mentor. I wouldn't have known what it was, a spiritual director. I didn't have any term for it. He was just an older guy in my life who was helping to care for me, and he said this, don't compare what you know about yourself to what you don't know about someone else. Because it's not a fair comparison. I know the not-so-pretty parts of my life. You know the not-so-pretty parts of your life. That's not what we tend to lead with in letting other people know. So in an age of social media, we've got to get real and we've got to be able to turn off the comparison and tone down the filter so that we're not experiencing increasing meteoric forms of envy. So the first thing to how to miss out on the fear of missing out, oh, and by the way, as this ties to David and to Saul, was, was David a perfect person? You remember the whole Bathsheba gate thing? Was David a perfect person? No. Saul doesn't see any of that. He doesn't see any of the conceit and the hunger for power in David's heart. All that he sees is the success. So get real. Secondly, watch out. We need to watch what we're watching. Did you notice at the end of today's story that it said that, that Saul kept a close eye from that moment on on David? He became fixated on David. He was always focused on, on David and what he was doing. So the, one of the questions that's behind this is the question of what are you looking at? What are you paying attention to? What are you fixated and focused on in your life? It's a very clear litmus test of the nature of your soul. They say the eyes are the, the window to the soul. What you're able to look at and what you're paying attention to gives us that clear view of what's going on in a soul. And there's different kinds of looking. There's glancing and there's gazing, is there not? 
I mean, you can look at something quickly or you can look very deeply into something and there's different gradations in there. And we get in a lot of trouble when we glance at things that we need to be gazing at and when we gaze at things that we're supposed to be glancing on. Wives should be elbowing their husbands in this moment in the sanctuary. It's not a good idea for me to be glancing at my wife and gazing at the iPad screen. We need to watch out what we're paying attention to and make sure we're paying attention to things in the right way. They're actually helpful tools with this. I mean, even the people who sell us the technology are helping us to realize that we need to pay attention to these things. I want to give you a screenshot of on Wednesday of this week, Thursday of this week, what my weekly schedule had looked like in the last seven days on my iPhone usage that I was spending about an hour and 39 minutes per day on my phone. I was having a good week. That was down 29% from the previous week. I was spending about two hours in entertainment, about two hours in reading and reference, of just under two hours in productivity, a total of 11 hours and 38 minutes on my phone. I spent a lot of time on a web browser, a lot of time with ESPN, whoop, whoop, a lot of time on messages and mail and notes, music. Notice where social media falls in this. I am a dinosaur when it comes to social media. It's not even on my radar. So let me ask the question, did I spend an hour and 39 minutes in intentional time every day with my family? Did I spend an hour and 39 minutes every day intentionally in God's word? What if I were to walk out into the congregation and say, hey, let me borrow your phone for a second and pull up the screen time app, see what you're looking at, see what you're paying attention to? What if I walked all the way back to the back of the sanctuary where Presbyterians tend to hide? And I said, let me see your phone and let me share with the congregation what you've been paying attention to. Would that fill you with some anxiety? That's because what you're looking at tells us what's going on in here. Jesus puts this this way. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? What you see and how you watch, what you gaze at, oh, that tells us. That tells us what's going on. If you are constantly fixated on others and what they're doing, it will tell us where you are benchmarking your life. So how do you miss out on the fear of missing out? You got to get real. You got to watch your watching. And thirdly, you got to make a commitment. Got to make a commitment. In a couple of weeks, David Brooks, best-selling author, New York Times columnist is going to be here. I find David to be one of the sanest voices in kind of the public sphere today. And his book, which comes out this week, I was given an advanced copy, is the most personal thing that I've ever heard him write. And he talks about even his own failures, his own shortcomings. 
And in the book, he writes this. He says, when I look back on the errors and failures and the sins of my life, they tend to be failures of omission, failures to truly show up for the people I should have been close to. They tend to be the sins of withdrawal, evasion, workaholism, conflict avoidance, and a failure to empathize. In other words, he wasn't committed to the people and the causes and the things that would have brought him great joy. And so when he started to look at who are the most joy-filled people in the world, the most flourishing individuals that he knows, he noticed that they were not people who were flitting about from thing to thing, but they were the most committed people that he knew. And so he writes this. He says, these people are not keeping their options open. They are planted. They have made strong commitments to one or all of these four things, a vocation, a spouse and family, a philosophy or faith, and a community. A commitment is a promise made from love. A commitment is making a promise to something without expecting a reward. A commitment is when you enter into something saying, I'm not trying to squeeze something out of this, but I am going to yoke myself to it. We live in an age where we have an irrational commitment to keeping our options open because we are waiting for that better offer to come along. It's a little hard for me to admit, but it's true. This week, every appointment that my, uh, that my, um, my assistant made this last week, she would do so, she would make the calendar appointment, and whoever she was setting the appointment with, she would say, there's an asterisk by this appointment. If Rich gets a call to go to Augusta, he is going to dump you like an old girlfriend. <laughs> he's going to leave you in the dust. He's going to go down I-20, and he's going to go, and he's going to go to the Holy Land. <laughs> Every appointment, she said that. I mean, not funerals, mind you, right? Like, I mean, there are limits to these kinds of things. If it was a wedding, I would definitely find another pastor to do that. But a funeral, I would have at least a high, high sympathy for it. Some of you, some of you get extra credit just for being here today because they moved the tea times up. I mean, it's inclement weather. Check, you're here. The Masters is going on right now. Check, you're here. I want to say a special welcome to our extraordinarily large TV audience this morning. You've got the Masters open on one screen. You've got me on the other screen. I'm looking forward to that extra large donation that you're making to our Easter offering next weekend. Look forward to seeing you there. But I was waiting for that better offer, right? Just had to keep my options open as opposed to fully committing. My favorite day at the, at the Masters is, is Wednesday. I mean, how cute is this stuff, right? Little babies and kids and caddy outfits, caddying for, you know, their parents or if they're older golfers, the grandkids. Look at that. How, does your heart just like, yes, that's awesome when you look at that kind of image. It's just fantastic. And even the greats of the game who don't have the same ability to be competitive than they used to, can't hit it as far, swing it as hard, but we still honor them and bring them out and have them share in kind of the, the fun of the sport. And I don't know if last year you saw that in the par three tournament on that day before the festivities really get kicked off for the competition that, that Jack Nicholas was there and, 
and Jack was, you know, letting his grandson caddy for him and the tradition of getting to the ninth hole and letting your caddy, your kid, or whoever it is, kind of hit a shot for you. And I don't know if you saw it, but this is what happened last year. He's figured out that he doesn't need to swing at it as hard as he can. <laughs> it's really a good-looking practice swing. He only needs to swing at about 120 miles an hour. That's, that's a good speed for him. Fantastic moment. Gary Player comes up to Jack Nicholas and asks him, Jack, with, with all of your master's memories, where does this rank? Greatest golfer of all time, maybe six master's championships. And with tears streaming Jack Nicholas's face, he holds up a finger and he says, this is number one. What's behind that is that he is the kind of person that can be as happy for someone else's success than he can be for his own. And my question for you today is, are you that committed? Are you committed to something, a cause, a vocation, a family, a community, a God, where the envy just melts away because you're happier for someone else's success than it is your own. His greatest master's memory, not having his name on the trophy for himself multiple times, but watching his grandson. His grandson hit a hole-in-one at the par three tournament. There's a story that Jesus tells. It's a story of a vineyard. They're having to do a lot of work at the harvest time. And he hires some workers in the morning and he's gonna pay them a generous and fair wage. And there's still work to be done and they need to get the harvest in and so hire some more people throughout the course of the day and at the end of the day, the foreman gives them all the same amounts, and the person, as he comes forward to get paid, who was hired earlier in the day, with all the envy, all the resentment in his heart. And then Jesus asks the question, a question that haunts me. Are you envious because I am generous? Honestly, can you look at another person's life and say, I'm just as happy for you as I would be if it were true for me? Envy's got us, but you can break it. And so let us pray. Father, thank you for the wisdom of a 105-year-old woman, 
for her ability to be content with what she has. Lord, as we move closer together with one another and have more abilities to stay connected than ever before, help us to know the mental cost. We thank you for the technology that we have, that we're privileged to own and to steward. Help us to use it wisely. Lord, I pray for the person who's in a midlife crisis. I pray for the teenager who feels all alone. I pray for anybody who feels like they're missing out or they're being left behind. Take away our jealousy, God. Thank you that you don't play favorites. For anyone who has the sting of rejection, remove it and heal it with your tender touch and your loving grace. Help us to get off of the the wheel of comparison, constantly looking at what others have and saying we want that for ourselves. And so God, help us to be real, to put down our filters, and to not compare what we know about ourselves to what we don't know about others. Teach us to watch what we're watching. Help us to focus on the right things. Give us healthy eyes, appropriate screen time. And Lord, we're grateful. Grateful that you made a commitment to us, that looking at us, you didn't want to keep your options open, but that you say to us, I'm right here for you. Thank you for being genuinely happy in our success that you cheer us on like a proud grandparent. With tears streaming down your face, your love is so evident. Thank you for your generosity. And teach us to not be envious, but to be filled with joy. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said.